Doing, uh, in our series called Vintage Church, so grab a, a Bible near you, there should be one on a chair, uh, and we're going to Acts chapter 5. Good with the recorder, Sean. Alright, Acts chapter 5, we're going to start uh, at verse 12 today, and we're going to go through uh, the end of the chapter. Last week we covered the beginning of the chapter, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, what uh, Ramis, Ramis summed up the sermon by saying, you lie, you die. That was, uh, that was her takeaway. And, um, uh, so, can't wait to hear how you're going to sum up this sermon. <laughs> no pressure. That was, that was pretty good. Um, uh, okay, so Acts chapter 5. Let's start at verse 12 and uh, go through verse uh, 42. Alright? Everybody there? Verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade, or uh, Solomon's porch. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they were carried to sit out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. But the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things. They were baffled about them wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid that people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than peace. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted the followers. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and just leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, 
we will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out in the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Because we live in the world, uh, but we're not of the world, Christians sometimes feel as if there is a pushback against our faith. In some areas of history, and even some parts of the world today, this uh, pushback um, has looked like imprisonment and even like execution. And that's the very real threat in this text. They're facing imprisonment and potential execution. Verse 33 says they wanted to kill them. But in modern America, the pushback that many of us might feel is far more subtle than what's here in the text. Uh, based on the conversations that I have had with many of you, um, I know that this pushback against our faith can take many forms. And you have experienced this in different ways. It can take the form of condescension, it can take the form of ridicule or isolation at your place of work. There can be pushback because of Christian beliefs or Christian practices, and sometimes we feel isolated. There can be pushback from our neighbors, our classmates, our colleagues, our family members who don't know Christ. There can be pushback from a lot of different people, and sometimes it can be about a variety of different things. I've, I've got a few to consider, um, but you might have experienced pushback for something that's not on my list. Uh, but common things that Christians these days experience pushback for uh, would be our views of human sexuality. In particular, uh, there has been a seismic uh, shift in public opinion as it relates to uh, the definition of marriage between a man and a woman. In the last 10 years, public opinion uh, has dramatically shifted on that. And the church still believes what it does and what it did in 30 AD. Um, shifted. And so... Some Christians feel out of step with their neighbors, out of step with their colleagues, out of step with even some of their family members, and they feel as if we're on the receiving end of some pushback. Or it could be matters of science and faith. So Christians believe, even though we don't necessarily say that we have all the details figured out, we believe that God created the world out of nothing. Jesus is the creator and who formed the world uh, out of, out of nothing, and then he creates humanity out of the dirt. And so, even though we say, well, we don't necessarily have all the details figured out, we're not signing up for a survival of the fittest struggle. We believe that God has done something intentional and something beautiful with this entire universe, and particularly the human race. Sometimes we experience pushback or isolation or ostracization at work because of our views about justice and human flourishing. And depending on what part of the country I'm in, uh, I'll get different sorts of pushback um, about issues of justice. So for instance, uh, if I speak out against uh, the kind of police misconduct that we've seen in Texas, a couple of shootings, um, 
some people will push back against me over that. As I try to articulate that people are made in the image of God, and therefore there cannot be um, unchecked actions such as we've seen. Some parts of the country, people will push back against me for that. In New York City, I don't get much pushback for that, but I get pushed back if I talk about abortion. If I say that unborn lives are created in the image of God, and they have worth, and they have dignity, and they have value, no matter where you are, you're going to get pushed back for something. Some aspect of our faith, and as we try to follow Jesus faithfully in all of it, we will experience pushback. And then, of course, there's the obvious one. We live in a, in a pluralistic society. We live in a pluralistic city. Uh, uh, somebody saw a sign one time uh, here that said, uh, New York, we, we tolerate your religion and we judge your shoes. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much, that's New York right there, right? We tolerate every religious or philosophical idea, but we are going to judge your outfit. Um, uh, but, uh, and maybe your food choices. Uh, but you can believe whatever you want. Right? And of course, as Christians, we also believe that people can believe whatever they want. But we happen to believe, at least if we're faithful to the verse that Willie preached a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4, verse 12, we happen to believe that there is only one way to God. There is actually only one God and only one way to heaven. That's not very uh, sensitive or politically correct in 21st century New York. And so some of us feel when we espouse these views or, or hold to these convictions and we, we, we interact on a daily basis with people who don't share those convictions. We work with people who don't believe that stuff. Uh, we have family members who don't believe that stuff. We have roommates who don't believe that stuff. Like, it's it, all over, right? Because as Jesus said, we are in the world, but we're not of it. So the big idea of today's sermon is that bearing witness to Jesus leads to pushback. Bearing witness to Jesus leads to pushback. Now, I'm intentionally using the word pushback instead of persecution. And here's why. I don't think it's fair to the word persecution or to our brothers and sisters around the world who are actually persecuted to the American church to say that it is persecuted. Because we are not. Persecution is what's in the text. It's when they lock people up and threaten to kill them. When they flog them, beat them within an inch of their lives. That's persecution. Persecution is what our brothers and sisters are dealing with in, in the house churches in China when they're coming in and arresting them and throwing them in prison and you know, don't hear from these people for years. That's persecution. So I'm intentionally not going to use the word persecution because I don't, I don't see anybody in America who's being persecuted for their faith. There is some pushback, though. Um, and so what I want to do is try to use this text before us to provide a template for here's how we deal with pushback in American society. Here's, here's how we can learn from their example. Because they definitely experienced pushback, they, and they experienced far more than pushback. You and I deal with this on a much, much, much milder level. Um, but let's try to learn from them, okay? So in this story, um, it, it starts with these signs and wonders. Uh, verse 12 says that many signs and wonders are being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Now, previously, Right before we got to this, there was another sign and wonder that occurred. Uh, it was the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it wasn't a like happy-go-lucky sign and wonder, but that was that was a sign and that was a wonder. Uh, and uh, Ananias and Sapphira are taken dead out of the assembly. They're taken dead out of the gathering. 
and verse 12 just continues this idea that miraculous things are happening in the midst of God's people, and the people around them are, they're, they're grappling with this. I find it interesting. Verse 13 says that at first, no, nobody else dared to join them. <laughs> but I'm not sure I want to be part of that group because people drop dead and then get carted out in that group. But that doesn't last because then the, then the next verse says that people were added to their to the Lord in increasing number, multitudes of both men and women. So at first, people are nervous. They're like, I don't know if I want to go there. But then they get over it, and they're like, but, but it's clear that these people walk with a guy who used to be dead. And so that helps them to overcome their, their apprehension. And there are these signs and wonders and things that to us just sound incredible. I mean, Peter walks by, and people who are laying in his, in his shadow, they are healed miraculously of their of their ailments and their diseases. Like these, are, this is incredible signs and wonders. Things are going um, swimmingly for the church. The sick, those who are tormented by unclean spirits, and they're all healed. And Satan doesn't like what he sees, so he mobilizes the city leaders once again to strike at the church, just as they struck at the church in chapter 4. They're doing it again. This is not new, just on a different level. Verse 17 says, The high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, they're filled with jealousy. Like, this is, uh, this is in part, doctrinal. Sadducees didn't believe in the idea of a resurrection. And the disciples keep running around obsessively, compulsively talking about how Jesus is alive. And so that really burns them. Strikes against what they believe. But then it's, it's also personal. They're filled with jealousy. Like the Sadducees, they're supposed to be like spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. But these, these ignorant, uneducated fishermen from Galilee. And Galilee, so Galilee was more like working class, blue collar than Jerusalem. And all of Jesus' original followers were Galileans. And so frequently, there's, that's put down uh, in the New Testament. They're like, oh, these people are just Galileans. Um, and that's a, it's a, it's a class um, snobbery thing that's going on. And they're like, okay, we've got these fishermen from Galilee, of all places, who are attracting a following and teaching people spiritual things, and they're not listening to us. We went to seminary. We know all the right stuff about the resurrection. This is not... Fair. And so they're filled with jealousy. And so they arrest the apostles and they put them in jail overnight. Like, make them sweat tonight. Make them, make them think about what they have done and think about what they are going to do. We'll talk to them in the morning. Now, uh, if you're a parent, you might resonate with this strategy a little bit. Sometimes your child has done something so bad and you're like, I just need you to go sit over there, sit on your bed, and think about what you've done and we'll talk in five minutes. Right? Uh, because you want them to think about it a little bit. You want them to process it for a little bit. Um, the, apost the, the apostles are put in jail overnight so that they can think about what they've done. So that the Sadducees can meet them in the morning and explain to them the error of their ways. Which they've already done in chapter 4. But they think this time it's going to go better for them. So, um, but something of course happens in the middle of the night angel of the Lord opens the door of the jail during the night, brings them out, and says go stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life, all about the life of Jesus. So that's what they do. They, they heard this. They entered the temple at daybreak. The sun's just coming up. Perfect. And so they stroll into the temple and they begin to teach. Now, when morning comes, the, uh, the high priest, 
all those who are with him, they can feel it, they can be the, uh, the Sanhedrin. And Woodley explained a little bit about what the Sanhedrin was a couple of weeks ago. It's this governing, it's, it's like religious leaders, but it's also like semi-political, so it's, it's got some like religious power and some political power locally in Jerusalem. It's kind of like the city council, but more religious. And so uh, they send orders to them to have them to have them brought. And the servants get there, and they're like, they talk to the jailers. They say, hey, jailer, uh, we want you to let out um, the people who are uh, in prison, the ones we put there last night. And the captain of the temple police looks, and there's, there's no one there. The guards turn around, and like, man, we saw them go in last night, but they're not there. And then they're starting to have these conversations among themselves, I can imagine. Like, well, what were you doing last night? You were here, right? You were on guard all night long, and tell us what happened. I swear, nothing happened. Like, we were here, we weren't asleep. We weren't watching Netflix. We weren't distracted. Like, I promise you, we, we were doing our job. Like, well, you're going to go ahead and tell the boss that, because I'm not telling him that. No, no, no. No, no, you tell him. I don't want to tell him. Like, this is this, this looks bad on my resume. I might get fired. And so the, the captain of the temple police, the chief priests, the guards, they're all baffled about this. Verse 24 says they were baffled about these things, wondering what would come of this. And they, then they get word. Somebody comes running down the hallway and says, all out of breath, have you heard? Have you heard? The people that you locked up last night are in the middle of the temple preaching about Jesus that you told them not to preach about. It's like a smack in the face at that point. It's like adding, uh, adding salt to the wound. And they're like, wait, what? We locked them up last night. And now they're in the temple preaching about Jesus. So they're like, oh, good thing. But this time they have to do it with some discretion. Because it says they're worried uh, that the people who are listening might stone them. You see, this, this shows that it's not just religious. At this point, it's also political. Because they're worried that they're losing control of their city. And that a riot could break out. And if a riot breaks out, then the Romans will step in. And Jerusalem kind of enjoys some pseudo-independence from Rome. Rome is like, all right, we're, we're officially over you. We'll let you kind of run things on a local level so long as you can keep crime down, so long as you keep unrest down, so long as everything stays, you know, kind of normal, we'll let you do what you want. But if things go sour, we step in. And you never like it when Rome steps in. And so they're like worried. They're like, you can't have a riot in the temple. That's not gonna that's not gonna go well. Pilate's gonna show up again if we do that. And so so they're like, okay, bring them quietly, bring them kind of secretly, discreetly, bring them in without force. Have them stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest says, Hey, look, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Didn't we tell you that? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the apostles replied in verse 29, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging the march. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter and the apostles are like, yes, we are guilty as charged. You told us not to preach in this name, and we have done it. Because we must obey God instead of people. And it's true, Peter says, you did 
murdered Jesus. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of these things. The whole like theme, I think, of the book of Acts is that the disciples are witnesses to the resurrection. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. And so they're like, we are witnesses of these things. We saw him die, and then we saw him alive. We are witnesses of these things, and yeah, also the Holy Spirit too. He is a witness of these things. Otherwise, he wouldn't be here in our midst, empowering us. So yeah, we are pretty confident that we're going to obey God instead of people. And so then, uh, everybody's enraged. The same thing like, execution, right now, let's just finish this. And Gamaliel, this wise, older Jewish leader, a Pharisee, Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. So you've got this schism in the Sanhedrin where some of them don't believe in the resurrection and some of them do believe in the resurrection. And uh, I think the Holy Spirit exploits that division here. Gamaliel, who does believe in the concept of a resurrection, even though he's not necessarily convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, he says, hold up, guys. We've seen messianic figures arise in the past because every good Jew is expecting the Messiah to come. And some people thought it was this guy named Judas in verse 36. He claimed to be somebody. I love how it words it like that. He claimed to be somebody and he had 400 followers. But then he died and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. And so a number of Jews were disappointed. They're like, oh man, Judas is not the Messiah. Couldn't be because he died and then his people scattered. And then there was this other guy, Judas the Galilean, in the days of the census. He also attracted a following, but alas, he perished, and his followers were scattered too. So Gamaliel says, tell you what, in the present case, why don't we just let this play out? Instead of executing these guys, trying to create martyrs and trying to squash this, this new religious movement, why don't we just see what happens? If Jesus really is the Messiah, and I don't think we're going to be able to stop it. He says, in fact, if we try, we, we'd be fighting against the God of Israel. And none of us as good Jews want to be doing that. He said, but, but if this is not a God, this will die out. Right? Just like Judas. Just like Judas the Galilean. So he says, I don't think we should fight against it. Let's just wait. Let's watch. So they're like, yeah, 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 we're not gonna we're not gonna do that to them. And then they beat up the apostles, which just strikes me as funny. because uh, they're like, Yeah, let's not oppose God and, and oppose these people, let's let's flog them. Um, which seems contradictory to me, but they flog them, they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Verse forty one says that the apostles went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is the story. This is what we what we read. This is what the Holy Spirit led his people through, and the Holy Spirit inspired this record for us to learn from. So as I said, what I want to try to do with this text is to apply it to us as we experience pushback. I, as far as I know, none of you have ever been locked up uh, for your faith or experienced anything like persecution. Um, but we have experienced pushback on different levels. So I want to propose three ideas about when we face pushback, how we respond. 
learning from the apostles, learning from Jesus, when we face pushback, specifically pushback for our faith, and I need to clarify that this should be for our faith and not because you're a jerk about your faith. In 1 Peter, uh, the Bible says that, that we should rejoice when we suffer and, and that that's normal, uh, but Peter clarifies, he's like, let it be because you're actually suffering for your faith and not for your bad behavior. Um, sometimes Christians are poor witnesses. And so they experience pushback. And a lot of times they can be deserved. That's not what I'm talking about here, okay? I'm, I'm assuming that you're doing this right and still experiencing pushback. So in that circumstance, how do we respond? How do we react to this sort of pushback? I have three ideas. First, when you face pushback, love those who are on the other side. When you face pushback, love those who are on the other side. Now, this is not explicitly stated uh, in this text, but we can see it uh, in other parts of the book of Acts, and we can see it from the life of Jesus. Luke 23, 34 says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He identifies with those who are killing him. Uh, not to give away the story, but probably most of you know that in a couple of chapters from now, we're going to get to the story of Stephen, and he's going to be killed. And what does he say in Acts 7, verse 60? He imitates his master. He imitates Jesus, because discipleship is all about imitating Jesus, right? And so he's like, I remember when Jesus was dying, he said, Father, forgive me. He's like, now I'm dying. I'm getting stoned specifically for my faith, so I will say, Father, Jesus and Stephen and the apostles loved those who were pushing back against them. They didn't view them as the enemy. They didn't view them as someone that they were locked in mortal combat with. They viewed them as someone to be loved, someone to be reached. A posture is perhaps just as important as the content of what we say. And I say that because that's how Jesus lived. I think we are called to imitate him. I think practically we should pray for those who are pushing against us. Pray for those who are pushing against you and your views. So maybe you're experiencing pushback from a family member because you're taking your faith too seriously. How you're raising your kids or how you're living this way or that way. And they push back. Maybe you're experiencing pushback from a coworker or a classmate who just thinks your religious views are nuts. Pray for those who are pushing against you. Sometimes we just we take things really personally, we get mad, we want to post on social media about it, talk to somebody else at church about it, and get all stirred up. Maybe our first response should be to pray. Pray for those who are pushing back. That's what Jesus did. That's what Stephen did. Pray for those who are pushing against you. I think along with that, it's really important how we talk about those who are outside the faith. How we talk about those who are outside the faith. Now, I have very strong views about, for instance, Acts 4.12, that we preached on a couple of weeks ago. And I believe that there is only one way to heaven. It has very serious and sobering implications for all those who are outside the faith. But I cannot speak ungraciously about people who are outside the faith, because if I'm speaking ungraciously about those who are outside the faith, Shows that I have forgotten what grace is. 
which is central to my salvation. Recently, uh, this week, I watched a, a video of a pretty famous pastor who was talking about uh, how he was interacting with um, someone that was a pantheist. Um, and a pantheist believes that everything is God. And, um, he was, before his church, uh, telling people about these interactions, and he was making fun of the pantheists for being short. Now, um, I don't believe in pantheism. I believe that pantheism is wrong. But I ask you, is that the kind of gracious speech that Jesus calls us to? In fact, elders, the Bible says, are not prohibited. They're, they're prohibited. Pastors are not allowed to speak that way. We are specifically called not to do that. We're called to be gracious in our speech because how we say something matters just as much as what we say. Um, so if that, if that particular pantheist was listening to that sermon, do you think he'd be one over? I, I don't think so. Do you think any short person who's lost would be won over? Probably not. They might take that a little personally. Maybe it bothered me because I'm short. I don't know. Uh, but I was like, that's, that's not how we talk about people who are outside the faith. What plays well in the house of God and you get laughs about from people who are Christians doesn't mean that that's right. And we ought to be living our lives in such a way that we are regularly interacting, whether it's here or out there, that we are regularly interacting with lost people, people who are outside the faith. And so I have to work at talking about them with grace. It doesn't mean I shirk away from Acts 4.12, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But I have to be the kind of person who, when I experience pushback, I love those who are on the other side. I pray for them. I speak about them as if they are my neighbor, and Jesus called me to love all of my neighbors. And then lastly, on, on this first idea here, I would say, remember that people aren't the enemy. Sometimes when we experience pushback, we're like, we can take it personally, and we feel threatened, and, and we feel overwhelmed, like they don't believe what we believe, and maybe we'll lose our job or whatever, and, 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 and I'm not trying to minimize all of that, right? So the, the pushback can be real, and it really hurts. Um, but because it hurts, sometimes we can fixate on people as the enemy. And Paul was very clear in Ephesians chapter 6 that people are not the enemy. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's nobody walking on this earth who's your enemy in, in a spiritual sense. Like, your enemy is the devil. Your enemy are the, the hordes of demons that he employs. And just in case you're wondering what his status is, Colossians 2.15 says that the devil was defeated at the cross. So my enemy is not anybody on the news. My enemy, my enemy is not anybody at work or someone that's pushing back on my views. My enemy is a defeated devil. I don't have to be afraid. So that's my first idea. When you face pushback, as we all will from time to time, love those who are on the other side. My second two ideas are directly found uh, in this text. The second idea is when you face pushback, obey God rather than people. That's pretty clear. Uh, Peter and the apostles say, well, you did tell us not to speak in the name. You arrested us for that. You've arrested us a couple times for that, but we must obey God rather than people. And we have seen Jesus alive 
And so that changes everything. Once, once you see a dead man who's alive, kind of changes your life. And so these fishermen from Galilee and tax collectors and this, this ragamuffin group, they're like, yeah, we were running only a couple of months ago. We were running for our lives. We were hiding. We didn't want to be associated with Jesus. But now, now we can't stop. Because we saw our dead man is now alive. And we are witnesses of these things, so we must obey God rather than people. The apostles said no to the local government because Jesus was alive and on the throne. Said no. And the motivation for us is the same. Now, I know in America we, we have this, uh, uh, this streak uh, where we like to be rebels. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, baked into our founding, right? 1776, the felony against King George, and ever since, like, we celebrate, uh, we celebrate in, in movies, right? The, the, the person who sticks it to the man and says no, and great pieces of literature, it's like, yeah, so there was this, there was this thing, but like this, this hero rose up, who rebelled, and he really knew what was right, and, you know, we, we glorify people like Robin Hood, right? Um, and here in America, we like being rebels. But we ought not be rebels just to be rebels. It is okay to be a rebel if we're being a rebel for the right reason. They are in this house. You're saying, look, we will obey God. And not people. Our motivation is important. We're not trying to attract a following. We're not trying to just be different. We're not trying to just go our own way. We have seen a dead man alive. And we know he's on the throne, so we obey him. Period. It doesn't really get any more complicated than that. But I realize it can sound simplistic to say, well, when, you're, uh, when your boss asks you to lie at work or cut this corner that you feel is unethical or, or do this thing that contrasts with your convictions, just obey God. And that is what I believe. But I realize it can sound simplistic, right? And I also get the fact that uh, my job is different than your job, right? So uh, do I have... I have temptations with my job that may be different from yours because I don't have an unsafe boss who's breathing down my neck asking me to do ungodly things, right? You may have that and may experience that from time to time. But I have had family members, uh, experienced pressures from, from different segments of society where people have wanted me to obey people instead of God. I think what we all have to do is to obey God instead of people. And I think that's why the Holy Spirit is so important. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and helps the disciples to know how to live and what to say. In fact, Jesus had predicted that. Back in Luke's Gospel, he said, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be rounded up, but you're going to know what to say. And he sends the Holy Spirit so that they'll know what to say. He sends the Holy Spirit so that they'll know what to do. I, I can't tell you, like, oh, here's the situation at your job. I know exactly what you should do. Or, no, I don't. But the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit comes, and through the community of faith and through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and helps us to know what to do when we're experiencing pushback. So if you are facing a situation where you're like, people are saying this, and God is saying this, I know I'm supposed to obey God, but I don't quite know 
how to obey God and keep my job, or how to obey God and, and still preserve my family. I'm not sure how to do it. Pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Because I think He wants to help us learn how to obey God even when it's hard. Third, when you face pushback, choose joy. When you face pushback, choose joy. Did you notice verse 1? Right after the apostles have been flogged, beaten, they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the man. They rejoiced because they were worthy of shameful treatment. Usually, when you and I experience pushback, joy is not our first response. Many of us are so Americanized, we're ready to fight for our rights at the drop of a hat. We're not ready to choose joy. We're ready to drop and go down the notes. The apostles thanked God when they experienced pushback. The apostles chose joy when they experienced pushback. They're like, hallelujah, guys. We have been counted worthy of suffering in the name of Jesus. They didn't come out of the temple swinging. They didn't fight for what was theirs. They prayed. They sang. They celebrated. They chose joy. You and I will experience pushback for our faith throughout our lives in different, different sectors of our life, different spheres. And when we do, I think we should choose joy. And I think we should refuse to believe that the sky is falling. Because it's not. It's not. I'm going to get really practical here. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable. That's not my intention. Uh, a few weeks ago, a uh, politician floated the idea of uh, taxing churches. Uh, specifically, uh, actually he said taxes uh, on churches, synagogues, mosques, any uh, charity that refused to uh, toe the line on same-sex marriage, which obviously any conservative synagogue, mosque, or church would not agree with. And so he proposed that uh, we tax those uh, organizations. So uh, that, that idea was quickly dismissed by most of the people running against him. Uh, and they were like, that, that's a violation of the First Amendment. You can't do that. What I noticed on, uh, I noticed in particular was the responses of Christians. Christians were up in arms. Christians were ready to fight over the tax exempt status of churches. Christians were ready to go to rounds. I didn't see anybody saying, well, praise God, if they take away our tax exempt status because we have been counted worthy of being treated shamefully for the name. Everybody was like, the sky is going to fall if this guy gets elected. Um, you know, maybe one day, uh, tax exempt status is removed from churches. Now, what would that practically mean? Uh, well, in Mosaic's case, we don't have any assets to tax. We don't have a building. Um, but what it would mean is they would be taxing you, taxing your donation. Because your donation... Uh, they, whatever you put in the offering plate, if you choose, and not everybody chooses to do so, but if you choose to do so, it's tax deductible. 
uh, and they would be taking that away. So they'd be raising your taxes. And what if they did? Are we going to close the doors of the church? Are we going to stop giving? Are we going to throw up our hands and be like, well, I guess, I guess we're going to fold this Christian thing in? Or are we going to say, praise God, because we have been counted worthy of suffering for the name? This guy's not falling, and it's never going to fall. Now, if there's a particular politician who can put Jesus back in the grave, then I'm right. If there's a particular governmental leader who can reverse Pentecost and send the Holy Spirit back to heaven, then I'm worried. But show me somebody who can do that. I'm concerned that too often we live like Chicken Little. We're running around feeling as if the sky is falling. My friends, do we still believe that God is sovereign? Do we still believe that Jesus is alive and on the throne? If so, then let's rejoice when we suffer. Let's rejoice when, there, when there's pushback. Instead, we, we, we run to fight for our rights because I think we're thinking more like Americans than like Christians. And, and so we fight for our rights. We're ready to hire a lawyer and go toe-to-toe with the ACLU and get all we can get. The apostles, by contrast, they're like, praise God, we have been counted worthy to be treated shamefully. And they were actually treated shamefully. It wasn't just that the government was going to tax their offering. They were like the flock. Russ Moore said, we should march onward with the confidence of those who know that the gospel didn't emerge in Mayberry and doesn't need a Bible belt to sustain. The reason our church is open is not because the government is propping us up. The government throughout history has been, I mean, in America it's been favorable towards churches, but throughout history by and large, that's not been the case. And churches thrive because Jesus is on the throne. Churches thrive because the Holy Spirit has been sent to empower his people. And so we experience pushback. We struggle with it. We're not sure how to respond. I think we choose joy. We choose joy because that's what the apostles did, and we're called to imitate them. And all they're doing is imitating Jesus. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus? Who, for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross, despising the shame, and was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Jesus goes to the cross with joy. Jesus can go to the cross with joy. The apostles say we can be flogged with joy. If the apostles can be flogged with joy, then you and I can hear our minor pushbacks with joy. So we're the people who follow Jesus, and so I think it's good to remember just where he went. His life reminds us that there is suffering, but there is also joy. He died, and he came back. So we're cleared out, we're clear-eyed about the potential for pushback when we follow Jesus, but we also don't despair. We don't wring our hands. We don't panic. The missionary Leslie Newbegin said, I am neither an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You see, the cross shows us that there is suffering and that we will suffer. The resurrection shows us that there is new life and we will prevail with Jesus. Both are true. So Newbegin said, I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist, 
Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So when we face pushback in your family, at your job, in your class, on your block, when you face pushback, let's be the people who love the people pushing us. Let's obey God instead of people, and let's choose joy. Because even if life gets tough for us, we know how the story ends. When the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord. Lord, uh, we come to you and we ask that you would cause us to become worthy of be treated shamefully here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing one more time.